Welcome to Sunday School for Heathens. The show where we learn about Christianity and how weird it sounds to everyone else. I'm Shannon. And I'm Brian. I am not a priest and I do not have a degree in theology. I'm just the kind of guy who keeps signing up for more things every time I have a meeting with my priest. It's true. Every time I see you, you're agreed to spend more time in the church for some reason. I am incapable of saying no. (laughs) You should keep a cot in either the church or the election office because I'm not sure you live here anymore. Oh, man. I absolutely should. I do have a blanket in the uh, campaign office, actually. That's good. That's a good start. (laughs) I hope to not need it, um, but... Better safe than sorry. (laughs) All right, so this is the second part of a two-part episode. If you haven't listened to the first part of this Spot the Differences edition of Sunday School, go back and listen to episode 20 last week, because we are talking all about communion, and only half of it this week, so you want to make sure you're all caught up. Yeah, last week we talked about what Roman Catholics do, what Eastern Catholics do, what Orthodox Christians do, and what Mormons do. This week we're moving on to the mainline Protestants and Evangelicals. Cool. So, are we starting with Lutherans? We are starting with Anglicans. Okay. Oh yeah, that usually comes next in the... Honestly, you could start either way. They both kind of broke off a little bit differently, but I'm biased. <laughs> I think I just sometimes forget Anglicans are a thing that happened. Uh-huh. And so in my mind, it's like Catholics, Lutherans, and there's like an in-between step there that also... I wouldn't really call it in-between. They're different. There's just a different tributary of that story. Yeah. And I sometimes accidentally overlook it in my religious brain. Well, I don't forget about them because I hang out with them a lot. Well, good for you. <laughs> so let's talk about... Anglicans. Yeah, so to review from last week, there's four questions that we're trying to answer about all these different denominations. The first question is who gets it? The second question is how often do they get it? The third question is what do they get? And the fourth question is how do they get it? The last two questions are the ones in which I have weird feelings about texture and food. Exactly. It's just a bit. (laughs) And it's going to be formatted a little bit differently this week. That fourth question, we're going to answer all at once because it can be the same for different groups within this. Great. Um, But we're going to keep the first three individual to the denomination. Sweet. For the Anglican Communion, that includes Church of England, Episcopalians, Church of New Zealand, lots of of places. Church Mm -hmm. of a country, probably part of this group. Great. So any baptized Christian can receive communion. This is called open communion. All right. So closed communion is only in your denomination can receive it, Mm -hmm. which is most of what we talked about last week. Mm -hmm. But this feels very similar to our initiation spot, the differences, where your baptism sort of like carry over from one denomination to another if you want them to. Yeah, that's what open communion is. If you're a baptized Christian, you got it. It's all Uh, fair game. We all agree on the baptism thing. Most of us. That's good. (laughs) But there are some individual churches that practice open table. I'm differentiating between open communion and open table. Open table is literally anyone. So like me, because I've never been baptized. Exactly. At my church, we say specifically, no matter who you are, wherever you are on your journey of faith, is the words that we use. That's so sweet. Yeah, I like it. I like it too. (laughs) But this is not the official <laughs> the official position of the Episcopal Church, just to be clear. As long as we're clear about it. Yeah. You don't have to have gone to confession 
but you should examine your life, repent of your sins, and be in love and charity with all people. So there's a brief, like, don't be grouchy? It's more like... Don't harbor ill will? Yeah. If you have done something bad, resolve that. Great. Doesn't mean you have to go to confession, but figure it out. Take care of yourself. And other people and be good. All right. Generally speaking. Cool. The schedule for when you can get communion, pretty much identical to the Roman Catholic Church. All right. Every day but Good Friday. Yeah. And even on Good Friday, there's still the... There's backup. The the old bread. Yeah. (laughs) Might be a little stale. It is, but often it's wafers anyway, so it's fine. Does that transition us into what is it? That does. They use bread and wine for the body and blood. Beyond that, it's kind of whatever. Traditionally, the bread is made from wheat and the wine is made from grapes. But in regions where it makes sense, you can swap out the grain for the bread and it can be whatever grain you want. And you can swap out the fruit for the wine and it just has to be some kind of fruit juice that you have made alcoholic. That's great. I sort of was wondering when you said it's usually grapes if there is a fruit wine communion tradition somewhere. So that's more if it's like particular to the region. Sure. I'm Because historically not everyone had access to grapes before you could ship things across the world. Yeah. But if you were making pear wine or blackberry wine or whatever grew in your neck of the woods... Right, and even more than that, it definitely applies to the bread, because there are some places where they just don't grow wheat. True. Like, in Asian countries, they'll make the bread with rice, maybe. I don't know. That's cool. I like that. It's pretty open, uh, what you can be. Does that mean they're also open on yeast? Yes. As far as I know, they're open on yeast. The bread at my church is baked by the parishioners. Okay. I know it has honey in it. Interesting. Um, I could look up the recipe. It's on our website. That's adorable. Is it good? It's okay. Do you guys eat the non-consecrated versions of it for other things? No. Okay. It's not that good. That's why I was wondering. I don't think ours has yeast in it, though. I'm not sure. But I think you can have yeast, as far as I know. And the wine we use is Tubuck Chuck. Yes. And you said you had a story about this. I do. So (laughs) I found out that the reason Tubuck Chuck is so inexpensive is because it was owned by a couple, and that couple got divorced, the couple that owned this winery. Okay. So now they can't take communion in a Catholic church. I mean, if they're not remarried, they might be able to. Okay. Interesting. But back to the story. (laughs) (laughs) They jointly own this winery still, even though they're divorced. Mm -hmm. So Chuck of Two Buck Chuck has vowed to make this winery as not profitable as he can to keep his ex-wife from getting money. Oh, man. Spite (laughs) wine. Which I love. (laughs) Every time you drink two buck chuck, you're drinking wine of spite. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) So, that's fun. (laughs) That is something. And then on special days in my church, like Easter, we use champagne. Ooh. So does that mean also there's not a red versus white issue in the Anglican church? Not a red versus white issue. I could not find anything that specifically said it, but the bubbles weird me out. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) It's fine. It's whatever. (laughs) I think you could convince me to come to church more if there was champagne regularly. We do sparkling Sundays uh, once a month where after church, people come out with trays of champagne and there are snacks. Your church is so fancy. We're Yeah, we're a lot of fun. If you're ever bringing me to church, we're coming on sparkling Sunday. I'll try to make sure that happens. Okay. Someday <laughs> it's going to happen. Yeah, so that's my church and also Anglicans in general. I'm skipping the how-to until we get to the last part because it... Kind of gets all jumbled. That makes sense. Next up, Lutherans. Great. The ELCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, allows any baptized 
Christian to receive communion. Open communion, not open table. Great. There are some other branches of the Lutheran Church, like the Missouri Synod, which is a more conservative branch. They only allow Lutherans. Cool. So but you could be not a Missouri Synod Lutheran and still count? Correct. Great. And there are also some individual churches that are open table, just as their local unofficial policy. Fair. They're not checking. <laughs> I mean, hard to check. Right. I guess a guilty conscience. But there are some places that will explicitly tell you, go for it. But again, not the official rule. Fair. In terms of how often, Lutherans don't do daily mass. So communion is on Sundays and major holidays. Great. Some Lutheran churches don't offer communion every Sunday. Sometimes it'll be like every other week, but that seems to be pretty rare. All right. It seems like most of them do it weekly. All right. And they're pretty cool with any kind of bread for the body, any kind of wine for the blood. Red, white, sparkling, yeast, no yeast, grain. Yeah. Leavened, unleavened, wafers, any type of grain. Red or white. Grape juice is allowed, but it's technically only supposed to be used if there's a good reason for it. Great. But I've seen it as places just like pretty commonly offered before. Is children a good reason or do children get wine? Children get wine. I think some Protestants don't like the idea of children getting a sip of wine. That's why they'll use grape juice. Fair. But... Because I figure there are like medical or addiction or whatever reasons why you really can't do the real wine. But I wasn't sure where children fell on that scope. Oh yeah. Little Orthodox babies are getting a little bit of wine. Mushy wine bread. (laughs) Yeah, it's great. See, I will admit the Orthodox wine bread situation is probably very good for those of you with not many teeth. Yes. The the children and perhaps the elderly. Yes. Probably helpful to both of those See that being efficient and beneficial for those parties. <laughs> I'll give them that. Fun fact about Lutherans. One of my friends who helped me on this is a Lutheran seminarian. And the church that she works at one time used orange juice or like orange drink in what? a pinch. Which... <laughs> Is probably not actually allowed, but they did it. That's great. I mean, (laughs) I guess it's consecrated. (laughs) Yeah, I think the ELCA is not down with that. That is the group that... Holy Tang is not the way that goes. Yeah. But, you know... Okay. okay. (laughs) That's Lutherans. Great. Next up, we have Methodists. Methodists are very, very much open table communion. Great. One of the very cool things about them, anyone can have it. Cool. And that's not just individual churches, that's everybody. So. Lovely. Doing good on that, at the very least, Methodists. Great. (laughs) We'll give you that one, Methodists. (laughs) In terms of how often, it's usually less often than some of the other ones that we've talked about. Oh, really? Typically monthly. Ah, interesting. Um, And a lot of the time it'll be the first Sunday of the month. Good for those of you who have to plan. Yeah. You want to get your Jesus in. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's only four times a year. That used to be more true... In the past, when there were fewer priests and they were kind of traveling on circuits, I guess not priests in this case, I guess it would be ministers or pastors. Sure. And some Methodist churches will do weekly, but that's also not very common. Is there, other than traveling ministers, is there a reason why they don't do it weekly? It just kind of seems like not seen as necessary to do it more often than that. All right. And I know some people think that it feels more special and more sacred if it's less often. That's real. Because if you're doing it every day, it could get a little mundane. Sure. Personally, I do not have a radical spiritual experience every single time I take communion. Fair enough. (laughs) Methodists use bread for the body and grape juice for the blood. No alcohol. Nope. 
the process of pasteurizing grape juice was actually invented by a Methodist doctor named Thomas Welch. Welch's! Exactly. Fascinating. That's where we get Welch's grape juice. I love that. I just love a good history trivia point. Yeah, it's a fun one. Mm -hmm. He was very opposed to alcohol, so he invented the process so that unfermented grape juice could be used for communion. Cool. Are Methodists in general not big on alcohol? I think so. Just in general, probably more so in the past, I think, as we get more into today, people have kind of loosened up a little in general on alcohol. Yeah, I feel like the one and a half Methodists I can maybe name off the top of my head, at least one of them I have seen consume an alcoholic beverage. I know Methodists who drink, Yeah, but I know a lot of them do not, and that's okay either way. I just don't know that many Methodists, or if I do, I don't know that they're Methodists. Fair enough. And for the bread, any grain seems to be fine. I couldn't find anything more specific than that. Right. Leavened, unleavened. Seems to be okay with whatever. Great. Whatever you got on hand. Yeah. The more we go down this list, we're getting more into like, you could go to the grocery store and pick up a loaf of bread, and that's okay. Cool. Next on the list is Presbyterians. They are open table, from what I can tell. Great. Again, usually offered on the first Sunday of the month. Cool. So we're still keeping it more of a special occasion. Mm-hmm. And they will use bread or wafers for the body and wine or grape juice for the blood. Grape juice seems to be more common, but, you know, it's kind of up to the individual church. All right. The bread, again, any type of grain, just you yeah. need some kind of bread. Bread. Whatever bread means to you, bread. Yeah. As long as you got bread. Great. We'll talk a little bit about some of the weird stunts people have pulled. Ooh, there's a stunts category in this one? I'm all, I'm in. (laughs) It's mostly just one story. Okay, still. Uh, (laughs) I love a weird story, so. (laughs) Next, we have Baptists. Sure. Which, there seems to be a lot more variation when it comes to Baptists. Cool. Some only allow baptized members in good standing at that individual church. So that means no children. Uh, Yeah, because they would be. Because they're adult baptism. Yes, the, the believer's baptism. Yeah. I have to just keep saying these things to myself so they stay in my mind good and I memory. remember them. I couldn't remember the Good Friday thing, but I remember what Baptists do. I mean, it is in the name. It's true. To be fair. It's helpful. <laughs> Some Baptists allow any Baptist, so not just that one church. Mm-hmm. Some allow any Christians. I know Southern Baptists are not a group that allows any Christian. They're okay. the more closed communion. Noted. At most open, they're going to be open communion, not open table. Thick. There's no specific schedule that is really followed for communion. Quarterly tends to be more common in the South. Okay. Monthly is more common in the North. This is talking about the United States in particular. Weekly is very rare, but some churches do it. All right. I think something like 1% of Baptist churches do weekly communion. Interesting. Yeah. And they use bread for the body and grape juice for the blood. All right. Still no alcohol. Still we don't care about grain or leavening. Yeah, they specifically do not use wine. Okay. And I couldn't find any specific instructions on the type of bread. Great. Baptists, I think, are probably the most strict about the no alcohol, more so than the Methodists at this point, is my understanding. But I could be wrong. If I'm wrong, let me know. Good to know. Yeah, I want to hear your thoughts. Are you a Baptist who drinks wine at communion? Are you a Methodist who doesn't? Uh, We want it all. Well, the Methodists are probably not drinking wine at communion. Okay. Fair. (laughs) And the last category I have is evangelical churches, non-denominational. This is kind of the catch-all basket for everybody else. Grab bag. Exactly. And we've talked about it before, but generally speaking, the evangelical churches are going to differ more from each other, and it's going to be more about who the pastor is, what the pastor decides. Fair. 
But in a lot of ways, they are similar to Baptists. Their requirements can range from you have to be a full member of that particular church to open table. It can be whatever. Yeah. Usually, evangelical churches will do communion less often than weekly, usually like once a month again. But it can vary. It can be more or less often than that. Most often, evangelical churches are going to use grape juice and bread. Sometimes they'll use wine and wafer. Or a combination. Yeah, or whichever version of that. I have heard stories of youth pastors trying to prove that communion can be anything. God can do anything. Oh boy. So we're going to take this Coke and these Doritos, and this is communion, man. Oh man. (laughs) That's pushing it, I think. I don't know if I'm entitled to have an opinion, but that feels like a lot to me. There are, yeah, there are some people that just to prove the point that it's more about God than it is about the thing, Mm -hmm. that they will just use something radically different than what is traditionally used. All right. I get the point that they're trying to make. It's always a stunt. Yes, definitely a stunt. (laughs) Also an interesting point. Yeah, it can be both. Sure. Okay, so now we're going to circle back around and talk about that last question. How do you receive communion? Yeah. Anglicans, Lutherans, Methodists, Presbyterians, Baptists, and Evangelicals are not as strictly uniform in their process as the ones that we talked about last week. Okay. So it could be different in the same denomination at different churches in different places. Yeah, it could be a little different depending on which particular church you're in. Sure. So most of the time, Anglicans, Lutherans, Methodists, and Presbyterians are going to go up to the front. Cool. The continuous line version of events. Sometimes the continuous line, sometimes going up to an altar rail. Sure. Altar rail is going to be more often Anglicans. There's also, it's kind of like an altar rail, but standing, where you go up and a whole line that was in a pew stands in a line and the ministers go from person to person. Sure. Like you were in an altar rail, but you're standing. Okay. But everyone's going up to the front. You're getting out of your seat. Yeah. Generally speaking, in those denominations, that's what you're going to get. You get the bread first. You either eat the bread immediately or you hold on to the bread and then go to the cup minister and then you can do communion by intinction. Ah. So you can dip your host in. This is different than the... Because you're dipping your own bread as opposed to having someone dip it for you. Exactly. I got you. Spot the differences. I'm spotting the differences. (laughs) (laughs) Different than the Armenian church. Yeah. In that way. Also, there can be either one big cup or at the front, there can be little cups and do the individual shot of wine or juice. Mm -hmm. The sterile version, if you would. (laughs) So there is a little cloth. It's called a purificator that that you wipe the chalice with. It helps a little. It makes you feel better. (laughs) Yeah. And then you're supposed to slightly turn the chalice. That's smart. (laughs) That's really smart. I mean, it still comes back around, but like what? I mean, I understand this was a ritual that was created before germ theory. (laughs) Exactly. That's very true. Those are kind of the three different options. Altar rail, go from one minister to another, or the two different ministers come to you while standing. Okay. Baptists and evangelicals, sometimes we'll do this. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we'll do communion more like the Mormons. The pass the tray. Yeah. There'll be trays with... Bread and little cups of juice or wine that get passed around. You can do intinction like this also if you can dip in your dip little in your own little cup. Yeah. Sometimes more than one of these methods will be happening at the same church. Wow, that's very efficient. I don't think there would ever be people in the pews getting communion while people are getting communion in the front. At the front, you might have 
a common cup, Mm -hmm. and also the little cups. All right. Those are all of the different ways that I have in general that can be pretty much at any of those. Mm -hmm. Though, like I said, sometimes they favor one way or the other. Sure. And now I have a special surprise for you. Oh, boy. I don't know what's happening. Oh. He's getting a thing. ready. He's found a thing. It's, oh my god, it's like a tiny individual cup, and it has a wafer and a wine. So I went on Amazon and I bought prepackaged communion for me and Shannon. (laughs) Are we taking communion right (laughs) now? We're gonna, just so everyone knows, it's not that sacrilegious. This is not consecrated. Again, I'm not a priest. I can't consecrate it even if I wanted to. I'm taking a picture so we can tweet it. (laughs) But... We have these little packages. I have 50 of them. I was going to say, there's no way you just bought two. That's the quantity you buy them in. Okay, so what do I do? So peel the little top off, the the clear part. Yeah. So on on this clear part, there's a wafer. Yes, I see the wafer. I'm mostly describing it for the audio. So I have a tiny little cup of wine, and then I have a clear bit. I'm having trouble getting my wafer out of its little compartimento. And then you can either do communion by intinction or, you know, just take the bread and then the wine. Yeah, but first I can't get the wafer out. Do you want to switch? No, I got it. I just had to find it in my place. Okay, what do you recommend I do? I'm not an intinction person, but up okay. to you. But do I... So I put it on my tongue and then I do the wine. Yeah, you, you can chew it. It's fine. I'm very confused. I'm a little nervous. Put it on your tongue. <laughs> See, okay. doesn't it taste terrible? I mean, it just tastes like nothing. <laughs> tastes like packing peanuts. Oh, it does. That's a good description. It's like a type of packing peanuts. <laughs> and just knock back your grape juice. One, two, three. Oh, that was really sweet. Oh, it's very sweet. Very, very sweet. <laughs> My jaw locked up a little bit there. Oh, my God. I was not <laughs> expecting it to be that sweet. So that, that's officially the weirdest thing I've ever done for this show. <laughs> oh, my God. We just set the bar really high on weird, and I'm really excited about it. But there you go. Happy First Communion, Shannon. <laughs> Thanks, Brian. <laughs> that was incredible. Well, on that note, should we take a break? I think we should. And we're back. And now it is time for the Patronage Pop Quiz, where I tell Shannon about a saint and she has to guess what they're the patron of. Didn't do great last week, but I'm looking forward to this week. Yeah, this is another fun one. Okay. This is Blessed Columba. Ooh. Now, why are they some of them blessed and some of them saint? Does it matter? Is it interchangeable? We, we did this. We learned about this. Come did on. I, did I miss it? You did learn about this. Okay, we I had a whole episode on saints. Uh, I just can't remember all of it. She's not canonized. Ah, it's a degree of sainthood thing. Yeah, she is in the middle of that process. I don't know if it'll get taken up again. I'm not sure. I didn't look when she became blessed. Cool. So, Blessed Columba. Yeah. She was born in Italy in 1462. At her birth, angels gathered around her house to sing. Aww. Then, at her baptism, a dove flew down to the baptismal font. Wow. She was meant to be a saint. A very very holy woman. Super. (laughs) From then on, people stopped using her given name, Angela, and started calling her Columba, meaning dove. Okay, so she was called Angel because there were angels, and then she was called Dove because there was a dove? Seems to be. She was raised in a poor but pious family. Her family didn't have much, but they gave everything they had to people worse off than them. Columba learned how to spin and sew from her mother, and together they repaired the clothes of the local Dominicans. And she was also educated by the Dominican nuns. 
In her teens, she prayed about her vocation, and she received a vision of Christ on a throne surrounded by saints. She decided that this meant she needed to devote herself to God, and she made a private vow of chastity. Oh, I see where this is going. Her parents <laughs> try and marry her, and she turns out all of her suitors because she's taken a vow to God. Pretty much, yeah. Great. <laughs> That's kind of the way it goes with female saints, isn't it? <laughs> Seems to be a bit. <laughs> Unbeknownst to her, Columbus' parents had arranged a marriage for her. There we go. But she cut off her hair and sent it to him as a way to break it off. Wow, that's dramatic. <laughs> I guess this was like a understood way of telling someone, no, I don't want to get married. I'm devoting my life to God. Just cut off your hair. Okay, sure. Whatever works. <laughs> she had the gifts of prophecy, healing, exorcism, raising the dead, and other various miracles. Wow, very talented. Yeah. And sometimes she would fall into states of ecstasy. During one of these, her spirit toured the Holy Lands. Wow. Vacation. Yeah. Very cheap vacation. Super cheap vacation. Spiritual vacation. Some people from the city of Narni, Italy, tried to kidnap her so that she could be their personal miracle worker. But she escaped. Ooh. Then one day, she had a revelation that she should leave her hometown. She walked away with no destination in mind. Along the way, she was arrested as a vagrant. Of course. But she eventually made it to Perigia. Okay. I guess. <laughs> Great. There she took vows and she became a Dominican nun. Okay. Her reputation for wisdom and holiness spread throughout the region, and she was a much sought-after counselor. During an epidemic in the town where she was working, she worked among the sick, healing many and praying for them. She actually became ill while helping the sick, but eventually recovered after praying to St. Catherine of Siena. Her sanctity caused her to be persecuted by Lucrezia Borgia for years. Oh, wow. The Borgias. Yeah. At one point, Borgia had a decree issued accusing Columba of practicing magic. Now, that's an insult if you're a saint, miracle worker, whatever, whatever, I assume. Yeah, it was not welcome. But a lot of what she was doing was kind of similar to magic, so I get where he was coming from. Okay. But it was from God, so it wasn't magic. Magic. Only from God. (laughs) And she died in 1501 of natural causes. She made it. She made it! Good for her! At the moment of her death, her friend saw her soul as a radiance rising to heaven. When she died, the whole city turned out for her funeral, and it was paid for by the city fathers. So, Shannon, what is Blessed Columba the patron of? Hmm. Is she the patron saint of doves? No. No? (laughs) But her name means dove! (laughs) She is the patron against magic, against sorcery, and against temptation. I was gonna guess magic second, for the record. There were so many other things that she could have been patient of. She has a very interesting life. Well, maybe she'll get attributed more things if she becomes canon. That might be. Yeah. If she gets canon, we'll see what happens. Yeah. And special thanks, I want to say, to Nancy, Talar, JJ, Quinn, Katie, Jim, Megan, Samantha, Tyler, Jack, Nick, and Andrew for all of your help with all of your different denominations, because I... I am not a part of all of them. It's true. I think part of you would like to be. Oh, no, I couldn't do that. Uh, too much? Too scatterbrained. Too much Too much theology there. We haven't even, we didn't even get into the theology That's of the true. Eucharist. 
<laughs> well, also thank you to Adam Griffin for all of our amazing music on the show. He's having another show in Chicago this spring. We will add the details to the show notes. Thank you to David Griffin for the editing, for the logo, and this week especially for having way more feelings about capitalization and punctuation than I will ever have. I appreciate your thoroughness, David. I appreciate all of you guys for listening and subscribing to the show. If you haven't subscribed, rated, or reviewed, we would really appreciate it. It's a great way to help other people find the show, tell your friends about the show, tweet at us your awkward communion stories at school number four heathens or email them to us at sundayschoolforheathens at gmail.com. And with that, amen. Amen. Go in peace to like and share the pod. Mm-hmm.